Well, that's, uh, I, I, used to, I texted Sam and said, if you need to, me to fill in for you on Sunday, I'll be happy to. Actually, I texted him sometime back and said, you can even call me on a Saturday night if you don't feel good. Um, now there's no telling what you'll get, but uh, I, I would, I'm available. I'll fill in on short notice. Well, fortunately, this week he called or texted uh, on Wednesday, so I've known for several days that, uh, I, that I'm on. And it's kind of a free Sunday, right? Because I wasn't expecting it. It's not part of a series. It's kind of a, a, a one-off. And I, I've been thinking about, you know, what scripture would I share with you? What, what, what means a lot to me? And there's a, a passage in the Old Testament that I've gone back to over and over and over again. And it's Exodus 1, 2, and 3, where God reveals his self-given name. God tells us, what his name is. And I've just enjoyed that. It's meant so much to me, and I want to share it with you. I've actually shared it with you several years ago uh, uh, when uh, I preached on it here at Calvary. Now, you probably would say, well, that's easy, right? I mean, you've been preaching for 37-some years, so you probably have boxes full of sermons. And you know what? You're right, I do. I have boxes full of sermons. But here's the thing. What I've learned over time is, is that I just want it to be fresh. I mean, I may still use the word studies and, and the geography and, and the timeline and so on. The, the facts are the facts. But I have come to the point where I just want whatever I say to you to be fresh to me. It may be fresh to you. So I... Set all that aside, dug into chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Exodus, and we're going to look at the life of Moses. And uh, this morning's a little bit different. Number one, there's not a large outline on the slide or in your listening guide. Uh, I kind of pared it down. I'm reading scripture. uh, That's what I have here before me. It's the NIV edition 1978, so yours will be pretty similar, a little bit different words here and there. Um, And I hope you brought your Bible with you, or if you're um, so inclined, you have uh, the text before you in electronic manner, doesn't matter. We're going to go there, but first we're going to pray. Father, we, we pray not only for Pastor Sam and for Jan, and we pray for all those who are fighting covid we think of the people that we prayed for recently, we, people in our own families, people in our small groups, people in this town, in this county, in this country. And we pray for protection and safety for them, that they would, would uh, heal, that they would become well, that they might again be able to serve you. We, we don't understand all that takes place, but we understand you. And we know that we don't go through it alone. So we pray for Pastor Sam and for Jan and for many others. We pray for ourselves too. Not only that we would be safe and well, but that we would be safe in Jesus, safe spiritually, that we'd find our hope and our home and our help in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name today especially we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to be reading 
scripture to you. I'm going to start at Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. And specifically, I would like you to go slow with me. Slow through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because when we read the Exodus, there's a tendency, I believe, on our part to kind of read right over it, 1, 2, 3, and get on to the Exodus, right? We want to get on to the good stuff. We want to get on to the plagues and, and the death angel that passes over and the, the destruction of, of, uh, of Egypt and, and, and the Exodus itself, their removal from the land. And, and I just want you to slow down for a little bit. Look at chapters one, chapter two, and then chapter three. And then you can read on your own time and speed up and go as fast as you want and get to the good stuff. Okay, tongue in cheek there. Chapter one, verse one, Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. And the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. And so the, the experience of the Israelites in Egypt was they went there under Joseph. Egypt was a place of safety, of food, of security. Uh, they were extremely blessed. And then they grew and they began to multiply. And the 70 turns into a great nation. And so what we have before us, even though there's 400 years of silence, right, before God begins to move, we see in the people of Israel that they went from nothing to something. And then I want you to see as we move to the story of Moses, it moves to a family, to a mother, to a very special son. wonder if that sounds vaguely familiar. So we have in the next verse, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly and they increased in numbers and so became, became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Actually in 10 times in chapter one, the Israelites, it, it mentions this population explosion. Um, and so in verse eight, then a new king who knew he did not know Joseph, uh, Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look what he said to his people. The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so the Israelites, excuse me, the Egyptians began to fear the Israelite people. So they had a solution. Verse 11, here's their first attempt, was to oppress them. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the, the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. And they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Repetition there, typical of, of, the, of Hebrew writing. 
Uh, it's not just that they were in a bad place and that they were slaves or servants, uh, eventually became slaves. They were given a, a hard task. But notice that the, the text is very clear. They, they were treated ruthlessly. It's not just bad enough that they were slaves. They were beaten. They were uh, hurt. They were hit. Um, uh, life was very, very difficult for them. Well, there's effort number two. If oppression didn't work, then maybe killing all the boy babies would work. So, verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Ruah, when you are helping the, the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. And if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do the thing which the king had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Eng Egypt summoned the midwives and asked, why have you done this? Now, let me stop right there. Uh, there are two midwives who are told us, you know, are given to us by name. I suspect that there were many more. These are just given as an example. And they were women who loved God, right? They were willing to fly in the face of the king because they loved God, they reverenced him, they put him first. What's intriguing about the life of Moses is that the heroes were all women, right? The women who gave birth, the women who helped them, the midwives, uh, Moses's mom, and ultimately, ironically, the daughter of Pharaoh. Women were at the heart of this story, and they were the heroines of this entire account. So uh, the solution was you kill the, the boys and you save the girls. In other words, more and more slaves, less and less warriors, right? Made twisted but perfect sense to the Egyptians. In verse 16, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> they told the truth because I'm sure that the Hebrew Israelites were, were very vigorous and very healthy and very strong. And many of them gave birth right away. But I believe that they were telling the, the, the king, Pharaoh, they were, they were lying. And, and I, I've just begun a long-term study of my own about civil disobedience, because I hear that all the time now, especially and even among Christians. And so I want to know what the Bible has to say. But I, want, I know this, when the Bible tells me that I'm, I am to murder somebody, then it's okay for me to be civilly disobedient. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I understand. So... Verse 20 is, God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because of the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And here again, we have the edict of uh, Pharaoh reiterated. Um, and it sets the stage for the, uh, the account of the life of Moses, the man of God. So in verse 2, or chapter 2 and verse 1, 
And a man from the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And so, and they, they were believers. And she became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The text literally says, and when she saw he was good. And, and some commentators, and I'm kind of of this opinion, takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 to the creation. Remember what God kept saying over and over and over? It was good. It was right. And I believe here is just a little glimpse of that. In the life of uh, Moses, he was right. He was good. And <clears throat> um, so she became pregnant. She hides him for three months. And then after it was un she was unable to hide him anymore, she made a papyrus basket. By the way, another word for that in the Hebrew language is ark. Boy, talk about meaning within meaning here. And they coated it with pit tar and pitch and placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, you could argue that, you know, this wonderful mother, you know, obviously was trying to save her son. She put him in a basket and she sent him down river. You could argue that. But I think she did this very, very deliberately. And I think that because the sister was standing nearby and watching. You see, I think Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river every day or on a regular basis. And she would bathe and, and go through her, her uh, rituals there. And I believe that Moses' mother was counting on her to be there. Now, that's an argument from silence. I understand that doesn't say that. But I just don't see anything accidental at all. It's not enough that the mother should care so much about a child. And she put him in an ark, put him in the reeds, and the sister's watching to see if what happens, happens. Verse 5, and then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And the other attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant's slave to get it. And she, that's Pharaoh's daughter, opened it, saw the baby. He was crying and felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. I kind of, Yard kind of uh, goes out to this, uh, uh, to Pharaoh's daughter. I think she was a bit of a rebel, don't you? Right? She was willing to go against her dad's decree to kill all the boys. You let the girls live. I, I, I like her. <laughs> she has this, this independent streak about her uh, and that God used for good. Well, um, here's this little baby, uh, and she's deciding that she's going to keep it. And this, then the sister, in verse 7, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? <laughs> hint, hint. Yes, go, she said. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. And I just want to say, isn't God good? Isn't that amazing? 
at this point in the in the, in the story of Moses, isn't your mouth kind of hanging open? Like, not only does she get to keep the child, she gets to raise the child. She gets to help this little one prior to his weaning. She can teach him all the truths of the Israelites. She can teach him about what God is like. And then she gives away this child to Pharaoh's daughter. And I believe um, Acts chapter 7, uh, it is noted that uh, she recognized that this was no ordinary child. And uh, she was a woman of great, great faith. And God repaid that. So uh, she's nursing this baby. The baby takes, uh, you know, grows up. Verse 10, when the child is older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. And that's Egyptian for I drew him out. It's also um, a word that's very much like the word for son. And the word Moses may actually have kind of a double meaning. He is my son, but I pulled out of the water. And so... Um, you have, uh, you know, she's rescued him. So she raises him as her own. And Moses was trained in the language, the mathematics, the military arts, the construction world, uh, of all the wisdom, the, the intelligence of the Egyptians. And, and you got to give a, you know, a, a hands up or a, give, at least give a, a shout down to the uh, Pharaoh for raising this boy and, and basically who taught him everything. Now, I want to fast forward 40 years. And, and I hope, and one of the constant themes through this is God is not in a hurry, right? He's waited 400 years to act on behalf of the Israelites. Now he's waited 40 years with the special birth of Moses where Moses is trained in all the skill and the wisdom of the Egyptians. And then we come to verse 11 of chapter 2. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. So already Moses is beginning to identify with the people of God, with the Israelites. And it'll become very, very clear through the text that he is... He's identified with them. What he thinks is happening to them is wrong. Um, he, he wants to act on their behalf. So he went to his own people and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And, he, and looking this way and looking that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And there's no getting around it. Moses committed premeditated murder. And, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, and and it, probably not the smartest thing in the world, right? You bury somebody in the sand, you kind of expect to be found out. And of course he was. So the next day, verse 13, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one, he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, with a snarky tone, I'm sure, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must become known. Now, 
I always wondered why did this man respond with, who made you ruler and judge over us? I never quite understood that until uh, all the way over in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is recounting the life of Moses. And Stephen notes that at this point in this event, Moses thought he was going to be the deliverer. And so we don't know exactly what he was thinking. Was he thinking that, you know, he'll start the revolution? Um, you know, he'll kill this Egyptian and, and, and that'll get the people worked up and they'll follow him and, and he'll be the new deliverer. Well, we're not sure, but the people weren't ready to follow him. That's for sure. And it wasn't God's time. So Moses uh, went on the lamb. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. A well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked of them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew us water, excuse me, he drew water for us and watered the flock. And so here, 40 years later, we see Moses, he's made a run for his life. He's gone to the land of Midian. Um, he, he sits down at an at a indiscriminate well and uh, the seven daughters are there uh, and some shepherds want to run off their flock so they can water theirs. And Moses, who undoubtedly was a, a man, a great military mind and a great man, went to the rescue. And so dad asks a pretty good question in verse 20. Uh, why, why not invite him here for something to eat? And Moses agreed to stay with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And so he stayed there for 40 more years. He, he married, uh, his wife's name was Zipporah. Uh, he, had two more so he had two sons in total. But then I want you to look at verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their name for help became because of their slavery went up to God. Names mean something. I just, I want to say that up front because God in the very next chapter is going to reveal his name and names matter. Our names matter. My name is Paul J. Holmes. There are other Paul J. Holmeses in America. Well, I'm sure of that. In fact, I know that to be so. Kind of a good news, bad news experience, right? I collected the church mail one day, and oh, there was a letter to Paul Holmes from the Sixth Judicial Court of Alaska. Hmm, that got my attention. And I opened it up, and it was sort of good news, bad news. The good news is that the case had been dismissed. The bad news was it was a child custody case. And so I read the letter very, very carefully. And it was Paul James 
Holmes was the recipient of the actual uh, recipient of the letter. So I know there are other Paul J. Holmeses around, right? I don't know the name of everybody here, but I suspect that there's probably somebody named for your name. Um, my middle name is just the letter J. Um, and uh, all my legal documents, almost two of uh, one, has J period, as if the J was short, uh, a, sh a nickname for something. And, and the story is uh, that the J came from my mom, who had uh, two uncles, one Joseph and one Jacob, and she didn't want to offend either one, so she named me Paul J, and that that way they could each think that I was named after them. That's the story of how I came by the the letter J. But names matter. Names tell us something about people. Uh, if I say a name to you, you have automatically you have connotations associated with that name. If I say Abraham Lincoln, you begin to think of somebody. Uh, who had a very humble beginning. Uh, he was a, a great speaker, a man who handled ter terrible, terrible pressures during the war. But he was a man who was kind. He cared about the slaves. And so yeah, all I have to do is say his name and you automatically associate with him certain things, right? And so it is with names. Just keep that in mind, and let's look at verse 24. And so finally, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. I've asked them to do another slide with those four Hebrew verbs highlighted. And I know when you were having breakfast this morning, you were sitting there thinking to yourself, you know, if Paul just explains four Hebrew verbs, I think my life will be better. But they're four very, very important verbs. God heard their groaning. And it, it's, a, it's a very picturesque word. It, it really is. And God cupped his hand to his ear so that he could hear everything it's what you mothers do when the baby's crying in the other room. I mean, I used to be amazed at Connie. I'd, you know, what? Why did you go? What? Oh, well, the baby was crying. Well, I didn't hear it, but she did. Yeah, you mothers know what it's like to have your ear bent in the direction of the little one. And that is the picture here of God who has, has cupped his ear and he's heard the prayers. He's heard the cries of the Egyptians excuse me, of the Israelites. And then he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the word remembered is used in a very special, specific way, right? It's not, not used like we do. It's not used as we would use the word, right? Like, I have forgotten, but now I have remembered. It's not that God looked around and went, oh, yeah, yeah, there's the Edomites, and there's the Moabites, and there's the Israelites, and hey, there's the Egyptians. Ah, and suddenly he remembered. It's not used that way at all. He remembered his covenant. That is, literally, 
God moved to act on his promises. Today, I didn't ask Pastor John to pick out certain songs, um, you know, based on the message. But I want to tell you that that last song we sang directly came out of the message, right? We believe that God keeps his promises. He acts on them. It's who you are. We sang it over and over. And so when it says God remembered his covenant, it's not that God had forgotten his covenant, right? Look through file drawer, Mark C. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, there's a covenant. I remember now. It's not what he's saying at all. It's saying now is the time that God is acting on his promises. And almost always in scripture, it's used in that way. And then it says God looked on the Israelites. In other words, not only you know, did he just see them, he knew where they were, he looked on them. The idea behind this word is he gazed at them. He looked intently at them. He felt what they were feeling. It was his participation with his people in slavery. He looked on them. And then finally, the fourth verb is he was concerned about them. And literally, that is a word for God turned his head towards them. The other day I was uh, I, I, doing something and I, I, uh, I got a scratch and it was bleeding. And, but the instant I got that scratch, my head turned and I looked, happened to see blood dripping down. Now, I realize that's a poor illustration, correct? But nevertheless, God looked down. He was concerned. He cared. He knew. He wanted to do something on behalf of the Israelites. And I think of all the times that, um, that maybe I or maybe you have felt like God doesn't care anymore. He's just not listening. I, I prayed, but he doesn't seem to hear me. God doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. God's not aware of my situation. Do you ever think that? Don't raise your hand. Please don't. <laughs> right? Do you ever go through that? You say, I, I, where's God when you need him? And I'm sure the Israelites were praying pretty much that. Where's God when you need him? And you and I have said it at times. Maybe your husband or your wife has said very, very unkind things about you. They're not true. And you feel it. Well, I'm here to tell you that God feels it too. Maybe your boss is not treating you fair. He's a terrible person to work with. And you say, God, where are you? And the answer is, God's right there with you. He's going through it together with you. Maybe you have a friend who has just abandoned you, or worse, a friend who has abandoned you and attacked you and turned and said evil things about you. And you say, God, where are you? I, I, I thought I could count on you. As Christians, we're being pushed to the margin of our culture. And, and the day, I mean, number one, that happened much, much faster than I was ever expecting. And number two, 
Um, it, it, it's not just that we've been pushed to the margin, margins, it's that they are hostile about it, right? They're, they're mad at us for holding on to the truth, for having values, for having, for standing for something. And they're angry and they're hurt and they, and, and they call us bad names. And we think sometimes, isn't God, doesn't God care anymore? And the answer is, of course he does. Of course he does. He, he has heard our groaning. He has remembered uh, his relationship with us. He, he has looked on us and he is concerned about us. So now we have, after 40 years, Moses and the burning bush. And I think about what happened in that 40 years. I mean, that's a long time, right? Like, uh, that's, that's a lot. And for 40 years, he must have been thinking. I, I reckon 40 years in the desert, because you're not going to have intelligent conversation with sheep and goats, right? I mean, what can you say to bah. I think Moses did a great, a great deal of thinking in those 40 years. As he's a shepherd now, and he herds sheep and he herds goats. And I suspect that he, he thought something like this. Well, I've missed my chance. I'm not who I thought I was. I don't know what God's doing, but I'm not part of it. I suspect, and I would encourage you sometime just to think about what he thought about. The bottom line is, he would say, I'm a failure. It's a long time to think that, isn't it? 40 years. I must be a failure. Well, Moses was leading the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. An angel of the Lord here is, and I'll go technical on you, it's a theophany, it's a God appearing. And we know that angel, uh, although he's referred to as an angel, it's actually God because we see that in verse 6. And so uh, this, this angel, the Lord Jesus himself, although that's not who Moses recognized, but he saw this bush that was not burning up. And out of curiosity, he turned and he went to see him. I'd like to know a little bit more. My brother Scott and I were deer hunting one time and, and um, it was a very uh, lightning filled afternoon. And we came around the corner and here's a tree that had been hit by lightning. And, and the core of it, the root of it was still on fire. And uh, it was kind of amazing to see. And so Scott and I pulled off and grabbed a couple of shovels and moved a bunch of dirt and, and uh, we put the fire out. But the fire that Moses saw that was occurring in this bush, the bush is not consumed. The fire is not consumed. And so he goes. And verse four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
And I, I wondered, how many times in Scripture is that little phrase, here I am? How often is it used? And I, I didn't have time. I didn't bother to track it down. But I would argue that that little phrase has been used over and over and over. And it still is, right? When, when God says, will you do this for me? And we say, yes, here I am. Use me. Verse 5, do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And so Moses takes off his sandals and he walks to this bush that does not burn burn uh, away or burn up. And um, my favorite Old Testament theologian, and sometimes I read him just, uh, read him even devotionally because I think he just says startling things. And in his explanation of this passage, he said, only God uses dirt and makes it a sacred place. And you think about what Moses must have, uh, you know, stood there in the bare feet and in the dirt and the rocks and the sticks and the animal dung. And yet God called that a holy place. Why was it holy? It was, why was it set apart? It was holy because he was there. And, and there's a song that I would like to have sung at my funeral. It's a, a song called um, when all has been dead in, <laughs> When all has been said and done, and there's a line in it that says, God finds purest gold in miry clay, turning sinners into saints. Isn't that a picture of who we are in Jesus? We were mired in clay, and he turned us into something of, of great value, and so here Moses appears. He's got this burning bush. He says, God says, I'm the God of your father. By the way, that's the first and only place that kind of dad is described a little bit. Right? All we knew about him was he was from the tribe of Levi. Well, notice here, I am the God of your father. So there's a personal connection. And then the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face and said, and then the Lord said, as here's those verbs again, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. That is, I've, I've shared in their slavery. I understand every lash has hit me. Every blow has hit me. Every time they've been given an unreasonable task, it is mine, right? God shared in their experience. He heard their cry. That is, he listened. And I'm concerned about their suffering, so, typical Hebrew pattern, repetition, right? Repetition for emphasis. So we would expect this next line in chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 8. We would expect that God remembered his covenant, right? Four verbs there, four verbs here. But God only, God only has to remember his covenant once. He only has to move to act once. And so there's a new verb here. And the new verb is, 
I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them into a land that is good and spacious. God hears, God knows, he's certainly concerned, and God has stooped low to deliver. Man, if that's not a picture of Jesus, I don't know what is. Right? He stooped low to deliver us from our sin. And there's, by the way, two parts of this deliverance. Deliverance from the Egyptians and then putting them in a, in a good land. And isn't that what Jesus has done for us in a spiritual sense? He, he has stooped low. He has rescued us from sin. And, part two, he has put us in a good land, in a good place. And if you're older like me and you've been following the Lord a while, you wouldn't give anything for what he's done for you, for what he's done for me. And so, let's plug in now verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You know, 40 years of being a shepherd in the wilderness will do that to you. It'll teach you a little bit of humility. I suspect, though, in this verse, there's also a false sense of humility. Um, and you can read about that. And, and uh, his, his argument with God that he is not able to speak, therefore he needs Aaron. But God says, who am I? Uh, 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 Moses says, who am I? God says, verse 12, I will be with you. And so in verse 13, Moses says, okay, I'm going to go to the Israelites and I'm going to tell them that God has sent me. What am I going to say? In fact, there's a specific question. He says, what is his God's name? What shall I tell them? Now, I've also already said that names matter right? Names are more than just a legal designation. Names speak about what a person is like. Let me use Connie as an example. For those of you that know Connie, and I mention her name, what calls to mind, calls to your mind? She's loving. She's kind. She has the gift of hospitality. She's non-judgmental. You see, just to say her name is to call to mind a whole bunch of attributes of her. And so when God reveals his name, and, and it's always, you know, in a, a context, right? He is the God who knows, who hears, who sees, who stoops low to deliver. And so in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am is his name. Uh, Pastor Sam, I believe, translates this. Um, uh, I am uh, who or when I am. Uh, I will be what I will be. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. And the next words cannot be more important. There's not more important in the Older Testament. I am has sent me to you. What is God's name? His name is I am. 
And, you know, translators for almost the last 150 years, they've struggled with that. How do we take the Hebrew and into English? And so they would argue, well, it was Jehovah. And some of us have grown up on that, right? We, we knew God as Jehovah. And then a little better translation and the commentaries especially use Yahweh. God's name is Yahweh. And, and I would argue that that's still foreign, right? I mean, it's still a Hebrew word. And God's name in Hebrew moved over into English is I am. I am. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. The Jewish people were so afraid of breaking the third commandment, that is to keep the name of the Lord holy, to not take it in vain, that they quit translating I am. Because if you were honest and you were just translating the Hebrew into good English like we have before us, you would say God's name is I am. But they were scared to death of saying God's name in vain, so they transliterated it into English as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And I, I realize, I realize I'm the odd man out here. And I'm maybe it's because I've, I'm coming to this game lately. I don't know. But for me, just for me, when I read in the Old Testament, I see the word L-O-R-D. I translate the word I am. And I automatically think of, of Exodus chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because names mean something. And I realize Jehovah's alien. Um, Yahweh, it's, it's an alien term. If I was a young man and I was just starting out, I'd probably make this a hobby horse, right? I'd just say, you need to call God by his name. Call him I am, because that is his name. But I'm, I'm also a realist, and I recognize that I'm maybe the only one in this room who uses I am instead of Lord. And, and if I was younger, I'd probably make a hobby horse out of this. You know, I'd, I'd drive a stake in the sand. And the reality is, I'm probably not. Do I wish you would use his name, which is I am, in the place of Lord, capital L-O-R-D? Yeah, I wish you did. I wish we all did. I wish I'd been brought up that way. Look what it says. Latter part of the verse. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is my name forever. And somewhere don't you see the, the, the workings, the machinations of the enemy that we, his people, have forgotten his name. Just something to think about. It's the name 
you shall call me, he says, forever. By the way, I believe I am, and I'll explain it in just a moment, but I believe if you go through the New Testament, you find I am is used over and over and over in the most wonderful of ways, right? You remember the seven I am's of John, that, that particular gospel? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. Time after time after time, Jesus said, I am, and then the people fill in his, his the blessing. In fact, so much so that in John chapter 18, when the soldiers come to catch Jesus in Gethsemane, and they, they were, you know, are you, are you the one? And you can read it for yourself, but it says, when Jesus said, I am, you know what happened? They fell down and, and, and they were ineffective. And he just said his name. I, I encourage you to read the New Testament and just plug in the I ads. So what does it mean? What's the bottom line? Yeah, it's, it's different, it's foreign, it's alien, and we're not accustomed to calling God by I am. And I've spent a great deal of time thinking about it, and I have come to this conclusion. It's a small conclusion, because I think there's more. But the conclusion is, I am is the answer to life's most important questions. And, and this slide, the last slide, asks you to fill in the blank, right? For yourself, for your, your issue, your plight, your question. Let me give you a couple of examples. If I said to God, are you able to forgive me and wash me clean? And his answer is, I am. And it means I can turn to him and my sins past, present, and yet future are forgiven and I am washed clean. Is God able to do that, you ask him? And his answer is, I am. I can do that. You're going through the hardest thing, the hardest time, the hardest period of your life, and you don't have a, a, an idea of how you're going to make it alone. And you ask the Lord, are you able to support me and care for me through this? What's his answer? I am. I'm able. I can do it. I can do it. When you ask the Lord, are you able to save me? Pastor John earlier prayed a prayer saying if there's somebody here or maybe somebody online who has not yet accepted Christ, the answer they might ask, or excuse me, the question they might ask is, are you, Jesus Christ, able to save me? And God answers, I am. I'm able. I'm capable. I'm willing. You see, even though... The I am seems alien to us and we're not sure what to do with it. 
I think God left it wide open so that you and I can fill in the blanks according to our situation, according to what we're going through. And I think he loves his name. I like mine. He must love his name infinitely. So that's his name. And I think it's extremely significant to you and to me. So here's my closing thought. Why not use it? Let's pray. Oh, great I am. Thank you so much for being the one who is able to do all these things we cannot do for ourselves. And not only are you able, you are willing. You're willing to forgive. You're willing to help us. You're willing to give support. You're, you're willing to answer prayer. And I thank you so much that you are able. And I realize translating it, I am, I understand it's foreign to us and we in the American church are just not used to it. And we probably, I hate to say it, but we're probably not going to use it much, if at all. But Lord, your name means so much. And your name is special to you. It's the place in scripture where you have given your own name, all the other places. And they're true. God is mighty. God is able. God is rock. God is, is uh, our forgiver. All those names are true. They're in scripture. Their books been written about it. And, and they're true too. But here in Exodus 3, you have given us your name. And it's no accident. So I would pray for my brothers and my sisters and the, the hearing of my voice that whatever they're going through, you would prove to be able. If there's somebody here who needs to be saved, you are able. If there's somebody who needs to pray, you are able. And so it's with joy and thanksgiving and a deep sense of grace and gratitude but I pray in the name of him who is our I am, even the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.